In case the name didn't give it away, I have an affinity for stories. Whether it's the stories I tell, the stories I read, the stories I watch, or the stories I share. Stories to me are a connection that is shared across ages, time zones, language, and personal experience. And that's why I believe that the range and breadth and depth of stories is part of a fabric that we are all connected to and thankfully there are very few ways for us to become disconnected from it. Perhaps that's why I seem to enjoy so much the stories I'm sharing in this edition of the Weekly Wrap. Whether it's the story about science comics and a new way to look at the human brain, or maybe just the brain, you'll have to listen, look, decide for yourself. Or if it's the story of Mark Millar and his Space Bandits project, and the relationship not only with Netflix, but how he seems to be taking the idea of adaptation, at least as I understood it, or thought I understood it, and presenting it in a new way that I'm still intrigued by, but I did my best to talk about. But also about just how powerful the impact of storytelling and how in movies, the Avengers Endgame has taken the idea of sharing or spoiling a secret or revealing information that only a select few have had the first access to, and their disclosure oftentimes not only confuses, but negatively impacts the experience of those coming behind them, still waiting to see. And how this has led to the promotion of an idea from even the movie companies, the actors, and those who have generally benefited from providing those spoilers, saying, this time, let's not. This time, let's consider another way. And what that share pack means not only for you or for me, but for how we are deciding to use the information that we are able to access and the responsibility that comes with having that information and with understanding what it means if we are irresponsible with that information. And that responsibility and irresponsibility aren't just about spoilers. The recent story of Tom King and how his decision to portray popular, even beloved characters in the DC comic series Heroes in Crisis has led to a reaction that crosses the boundary of comic book creators and the readers who enjoy them and moves into one of the more dangerous aspects of storytelling. And more importantly, the responsibility that we as readers have when we agree to invite a story into our lives and make characters a part of our hearts. Because with that comes a responsibility to understand just what that relationship means and where the limits in that relationship exist. I know, I know, it sounds like a little bit of fun and a lot of serious, but generally, there's, I both hope and believe a reflection of how we can consider 
where we can demonstrate our best selves and how a combination of those two can impress upon not only you but me through the process of telling it the impact and the value that stories have always had and continue to take in our lives, in our hearts, in our beliefs. But let's stop talking about it and let's get to talking on this new edition of the Weekly Wrap. I'm your host, Seth Singleton. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. Now, this is a fun story that I found just a little while back. And it's about science comics, um, something I wasn't as familiar with. I found this on, actually, the website Comics Worth Reading. And the title is about science comics, and more importantly, their focus on the brain, the ultimate thinking machine. Now, I like that the premise is one in which the point of the comic is to be educational, and yet the method for doing so is designed to reach out to children exactly the way you might think it would, or at least the way it would for me. Essentially, the premise focuses on the idea of a mad scientist known as Dr. Cerebrum, which might seem like a bit of a presumptuous name until you realize that it's an ambulatory brain in a jar. Confused? Let's rewind a little bit. So, about the brain, the ultimate thinking machine. One, it's written by Tori Wolcott and illustrated by Alex Grodens. And in this story, a young girl named Fahama is helping her determined younger sister sell cookies door to door. And then she stumbles upon the lair of Dr. Cerebrum. In order to prevent him from removing her head, <laughs> she begins probing him with questions and trying to use his vast knowledge to delay the inevitable. And in doing so, she learns about the history of brain science, the evolution and structure of neurons, the system of electrical communication, involving synapses and action potential, the makeup of the nervous system, the parts of the brain itself, and how senses such as sight and touch actually work. Now I love that this article that's talking about this game, comic, <laughs> I love when I switch them up like that. Sometimes it feels like the story for either or is so similar that I find myself just floating between the names. However, I do promise to try to avoid being uh, confusing in the process. <laughs> but essentially, uh, using exaggerated humor, the comic cuts back and forth between searching for Fahama's sister to the history and value and sort of makeup of the human brain. Now, it also points out that the education material can seem a bit overwhelming because there's a lot of specialized terms and structures, but by using pop culture references like a Star Trek spaceship 
or bad guy's zombie butler, this information is broken down in a way so that it's kid size, bite size, more easily accessible. And then I like how it wraps up with uh, a, a really important and valuable econom economic, <laughs> educational component, which is that in the final section, it ties everything together with language communication and memory and smart study habits with a high note on the content that's relevant to most readers. And then I love that it points out this great quote. Don't ever estimate your intelligence or the intelligence of those around you. And I also love that this review, which it points out was originally posted at Good Comics for Kids, includes a link to an original review copy provided by the publisher. I was lucky enough to work in a teaching program called Upper Bound, and it was there that I was stunned to meet a very talented co-worker who had graduated from the University of California, Berkeley with a bachelor's degree in chemistry. And then I learned that she was the only black woman to ever do so. And that was a surprise. And she said it was a surprise to her too, but it was also something that encouraged her to encourage women, especially women of all colors, to pursue science. Because just as she was able to demonstrate through her graduation, there's not many people who look like her or who are like her graduating from these programs, which means that we've got this percentage of the population that isn't being represented in scientific and academic pursuits. While that was almost 10 years ago, it's been amazing since that time to see just how much interest and concerted efforts have been made to show women, young girls, ways to access and interact with science. Uh, more recently, the first thing that comes to mind would be something like the Goldie Blocks toy sets, which I really like the idea of because I have a few nieces who are about the age where they can start using material like that and engage with it without it being above their heads. And at least one has already shown an aptitude for science-based tools, skills, and projects. Now, while her sister hasn't shown the same aptitude, if it's introduced to them both, if at least one takes an interest or it furthers their interest in science, then that increases the possibility of that greater percentage of representation, which means, I know in my mind, sometimes representation just feels like making sure that there's a quota number. But when you think about representation, for me, especially from a storytelling point, it feels more that it's about perspective. And the more people that you have looking at a problem from as many different angles as possible, the more approaches you have available to solving the problem. And in many situations, it's challenging but and unfortunate, but there can oftentimes be best routes based on situation or a set of circumstances and not having an additional perspective with which to consider an approach 
that might best handle those circumstances, it's a limitation. It's actually a limitation on solving the problem. So I love that this idea really points to how the more people we have looking at a problem, and one way of doing that is making sure that there are just as many women in science-based programs as there are in men, there's this opportunity to have additional perspectives added to the process of solving a problem and the greater opportunity for new approaches and solutions to solving that problem. I like solving problems and I love that this is a comic series that promotes how to look at so many different parts of science and more specifically kind of like the big mist one of the big mysteries of it which is our brain and how it's something that can be approachable despite as this article points out just how many specialized terms and structures can go along with it the presentation of it is actually what makes it so accessible and it's through that that we're able to see how it provides this perspective for young scientists eager to learn about something when it's presented to them in a way that's fun, engaging, and not preventing them from gaining access to the information, but providing them a way in. Now this one caught my attention for a few reasons. One, it's about Mark Millar's new comic book called Space Bandits. But it intrigues me that as I read about the story, it focuses on the idea that, well, not only is this Space Bandits coming to Netflix, but it's coming to Image Comics second. That can get a little confusing. So let's rewind a little. Essentially, Space Bandits is a program that will appear on Netflix and it's not known if it's going to be a film or a television series. However, this article focuses on the idea that there will be a comic book series to go along with it. And interestingly enough, the comic book series, which again will be published through Image, is described as an adaptation. And I'm intrigued by that because it appears as though the live action program, I think live action, hasn't actually specified but the video programming, television or film, has actually been written first, and now the comic will follow. And this is an interesting approach. More often than not, films, television, miniseries that are about comic books are created after the comic book has been written, so that they're actually based on the comic book, and the comic book becomes the source material. In this instance, the show has been written first, and now the comic will be following up. Now, I'm intrigued for a few reasons. One, I stumbled across Mark Millar when he did The Ultimates for Marvel Comics. And it's interesting that that series, which focused on a modern telling of the Avengers story, was in many ways the basis for the Avengers movie that would later come out, um, I think about four or five years after, maybe longer. Mark Millar provided a lot of 
just really great storytelling in that series. And from that point on, he's been someone who I've kept an eye on. Now, he's been involved in a lot of different projects, and he's created a host of his own characters, leading to something that has been termed Miller World, in which, basically, Miller has created a universe in which all of the characters that he's created currently exist. And based on that, it's got a set of uniform identifying characteristics. For this story, Space Bandits follows two intergalactic criminals named Thena Cole and Cody Blue as they team up to get revenge on the gangs that betrayed them both. I love this additional quote from Mark Millar, which says that in a world with a billion superhero properties and gloomy, rain-soaked dystopian sci-fi, there's a gap in the market for sci-fi that's upbeat and fun. I wanted to combine all this into a big, high-octane story. I've been working on this as a property for Netflix since last summer, and now I'm being joined by the brilliant Matteo Scalera for the comic book translation of this story. Matteo Scalera received a great deal of recognition and continued fame for his work on black science. Millar goes on to say, the guy's a genius, and I've followed him for years. Having him draw this is like someone you've always had a crush on, going out on a date with you. He's just amazing. And just to wrap up, I'm intrigued again by this concept of adaptation because it's something that, for me, was not always a desirable property when it came to comic books. I had a limited amount of money, and when I did, I was only going to buy so many comic books with it. And after reading through the film adaptations that one or two friends had bought for Batman, Batman Returns. While I enjoyed that they were, for the most part, true to the film or sometimes showed discrepancies, overall, it was difficult for me to make sense of why I wanted a book form of something that I'd already seen in a movie form, especially if it simply was just uh, a retelling or a copy. And in this case, I'm intrigued because maybe not everyone will get the chance to experience Space Bandits on Netflix first. If only because, well, upon my last viewing, (laughs) Netflix has so much original material that I think I've got like 10 shows on my list I haven't even taken a crack at. And it's simply that between new shows that pop up that have received so much attention that I'm drawn to watch them first, or simply the finite amount of time in each day and how much time I can take away from that to try a new show. And that if that means there's a limit to how much exposure this show from Mark Millar could receive, that the attempt to get its story out to audiences by also providing a comic book is a rather ingenious of getting around way of getting around this sort of glut that currently exists within the Netflix market. I know that I won't have long to wait to see just how it looks because according to this article Space Bandits will be out on July 3rd. 
which will at least give me the opportunity to take a look at and consider this show that will be on Netflix. Because as I scanned through the article a couple of times, I realized it doesn't say when the show will be coming out on Netflix. So, (laughs) even though the comic book is an adaptation, since it will be released to the public, I believe, first, that will be my first opportunity to consider the story, the characters, and whether or not this is something I'll be looking for on Netflix when it arrives. Now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. And now it's time to transition for just a little bit into a few stories that I think illustrate the power of a story and what it means when the power of a story becomes so prevalent that it actually ends up affecting just how it is that we all decide what is or is not important when it comes to protecting something like the austerity of a story or the power of a story's revelation. Now, the first story for me is about the story of, well, the one thing that I think's really been on the mind of so many people as the approach of the premiere has continued to draw closer. It started with Captain Marvel, and for those who have seen it, you now know why it's actually Captain Marvel. And if you haven't, once you do, that pronunciation will make a lot more sense. But in so many ways, the viewing audiences saw Captain Marvel as an opportunity to tee up the arrival of the Avengers Endgame approximately one month later. Now, if you can hear that snoring in the background, that means my French bulldog, Bruno, is a little bit nonplussed about all this. The excitement for him was never prevalent either before or after Infinity War, and it hasn't changed now with the approach of Endgame. But I'm different. I remember the anticipation of Avengers Infinity War and the possibility and scope of what it was undertaking, and it was something that all of us who were familiar with the story, when talking about it, whether it was comic book reviewers I work with at DC Comics News, or friends I have either at my job or working on other projects, or just relations through family and other acquaintances. It was really a powerful moment when the movie arrived, and audiences had experienced that last sort of 45-minute burst, which is something that the Avengers movies have somewhat been known for since the first Avengers movie. And how, in turn, there was a a sort of shared understanding that that ending needed to be preserved for as long as possible for every member of the audience who couldn't see it on the original night but had in their minds the plan to either buy tickets or copies of their tickets stored in their purchase history so that they could see it when the time fit best for them. And that the idea is and was, that just because you saw the movie didn't mean that you had a right to spoil the secret and the sort of cliffhanger that Infinity War left us with at its ending. Which is why I really enjoyed that as Endgame 
is nearing its reveal and because now that the first wave of moviegoers has experienced the early release or first showings and they have experienced not only the movie but also are aware of this privy and private sort of knowledge that can only be shared by those who have watched it so far is an expectation to keep that to themselves. There's been a campaign actually pushed by uh, social media, by members of the movie, even a bit of the joking and prodding when it comes to members of the cast who have, unfortunately, despite their best efforts, revealed spoilers or given away information that they weren't supposed to and from all appearances, didn't mean to reveal. But this idea that everyone has been waiting for the chance to experience what the conclusion of this far-reaching storyline will be, and after all these years of it growing and developing, there's a desire to connect with the understanding all fans have, that no one likes it when a secret or an experience is spoiled just because someone got there first. And I know that for myself, I don't enjoy seeing movies like this on the big night. I feel it can be a bit exhausting to have this kind of energy drain on myself from the sort of build-up and the energy that's required in order to get in line, line up early, get through the movie, get home, and then recover afterwards. But I do know that I'll be seeing the movie on the Monday after its Thursday night release. And I'll get a chance to catch up with everyone during the week who has seen it and share the experience that we've all enjoyed. But also knowing that just because I saw it a few days after its initial release does not mean that others have. Once I do see it, I will be one of those who will be required to bear the responsibility of not giving away any secrets, not writing about them, not tweeting them, not sharing them, not video chatting about them, or finding some other way to disclose information that others would like to discover and experience for themselves. And there's something that I really enjoy about this effort on the part of everyone who believes that there is a power to the experience that has begun with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And the connections that were made with audiences when the stories of different characters began to tie together into one larger narrative. And that there's a sense of sanctity that comes with this sort of larger story. And the desire by all those who believe in the power of that experience to preserve that sanctity and to allow it to be there for as long as possible for everyone who wishes to enjoy it without feeling like their experience has been in some way shaped or impacted by the perceptions or statements of someone who was there before them. Much like if you know a movie's coming out, and you know that there's going to be information or viewpoints and reviews that you maybe don't want to experience until after you've seen it, you avoid the reviews. And thankfully, the reviewers aren't shouting at you that they've got information about the movie and they need you to hear it. And the only way for you to avoid it 
is to close yourself off. And now there's this desire and push by so many to say, let's all work together to prevent anyone from disturbing the experience for others by supporting a belief and a desire that we all share, which is to know something as we understand it, and not because of how someone else has come to understand it, or for the reasons that we have heard from them or believe that they have taken the positions they have, that it's something that we want to know for ourselves. And because of how important that is to us, we're willing to extend that importance to those around us who share that same desire. I know it's easy to dismiss stories as something we experience and move on from, but time doesn't diminish the power of the experience when we have it in the moment and the way we reflect upon it afterwards. One of the great things about the Avengers is their connection that they've made with the audience and the reverence they hold for the power that the audience gives to their movies. And now by extension, the audience has made its connections with each other and in doing so has extended the same degree of respect to the audience as a family, as brethren, as someone who also has a similar, if not equal, degree of power, and because of that, deserve the same degree of reverence, recognition, and respect. I can imagine a few other examples of just how powerful a story and a collection of stories can be such an impressive part of all of our lives. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. Now, I'm looking forward to sharing my thoughts and experience when it comes to Avengers Endgame when I provide next week's, hopefully, Weekly Wrap. You might notice that this edition of Weekly Wrap is a little bit behind schedule, and that's just what happens with life sometimes. And that's also why I have to be honest that in order to make this edition work best, I've had to accept that the snoring sounds of my French bulldog Bruno in the background will simply have to be a part of my theme or motif or the general ambiance of the experience when listening to editions of Storytelling with Seth. In fact, if he becomes more popular than me, I would actually be more than happy to make his face the face of this production and broadcast. I'll be honest, it's just a lot cuter, and really, who doesn't love cute? But while I'm looking forward to sharing my Avengers Endgame experience, spoiler-free of course, I'm also aware of the fact that the positive points that I was referring to regarding a story that can impact and influence us all is measured by another story that has come out this week and the reaction that it has generated not only for the comic book community but also social media in general. Now what I'm referring to is the release of Heroes in Crisis number 8 from DC Comics. And this one is really interesting because Heroes in Crisis has been a very challenging work that was put together and 
in at least my opinion, has been rather masterfully told by Tom King. I really enjoyed Tom King's run on Batman, as I've mentioned in the past, and I also have a great affinity for his work on Mr. Miracle, which is something I got the chance to talk about on the most recent edition of DC Comics News Podcast. And when I did, it was actually in response to the fact that the DC Comics News Podcast had learned through uh, our news filtering process that Tom King will be bringing together a new collection, a 12-issue miniseries, much like he did on Vision for Marvel, and as I mentioned, he did with Mr. Miracle for DC Comics. But while I've enjoyed his work, it doesn't mean it hasn't been challenging, and those challenges have been echoed by members of the DC Comics community and the comic book community at large. It goes to all the ranges of the work that he's touched upon, whether it was his decision for Batman number 50 to not have the wedding go through, or his decision to open Heroes in Crisis with a whodunit mystery. And not just a whodunit mystery, but a whodunit murder mystery. At the center, some of DC Comics' most popular but also most likely to fall into the sidelined or peripheral characters. There were a few standouts who might factor closer to the to the top tier or grade A or uh, premier level characters. And they, of course, are the exceptions in many ways. But this story, as a whodunit, does a great job of not prescribing any definitive answers regarding who it might be to blame and how the story actually came to unfold. By showing the experience from the viewpoints of many characters and then creating an additional layer by introducing a series of videotaped or recorded confessions. I think I just showed my age by saying videotaped but recorded video confessions from these heroes about the things that are the most challenging for them and the issues that they've come to this place to address, which is actually another part of the story, because before it was released, Tom King had mentioned that he wanted to work on a concept known as Sanctuary, a process to help heroes deal with with, in many ways, traumatic events that they've experienced and the consequences that come with them. And I thought this was very interesting because Tom King himself has spoken about how he has used comics in many ways to address issues that are going on in his own life or things that he is facing and working or dealing with. And by taking that consideration and viewing comic books and superheroes with that perspective... He came across the idea that many heroes who have demonstrated that they have struggled with issues in the past, either through their actions or their addictions or the way that they've been portrayed in their story, the form of a narrative in which, essentially, it's more of a third-person experience or an engagement. And through the process of Sanctuary, these characters would have the opportunity to address the reader as the you, and themselves as the I, and to create that 
intimacy that often comes from these closed session practices. And there's a challenge in that this process is so disrupted and to such a powerful degree, and also that the the victims of this whodunit are the ones most in need of help, and that because they were there seeking treatment, the loss that's felt in their passing has really created a series of ripples uh, for those who have been following the series and are wondering will this stay part of continuity? Is this something that DC believes is the end for these characters? Is it something that they want to be the last word? Or can there be some hope of a correction? And those challenges, while they have created these issues for the characters, up until now have only been something experienced by social media and those who communicate through the different message boards for comic books. While they've stayed relatively within those confines, there was the development recently when Tom King posted a picture that showed that he had to submit a request to Twitter to have someone not be able to contact him using that platform. And the reason is that, as he states... He writes comics for DC Comics, and that a person who didn't like a decision that he made in the comic books has now made threats to kill him, and that's why he's asking Twitter to block him. And his sort of statement with that post was to say that he's been doing this far too often, and he feels it's something that is a concern. And it demonstrates that while there can be this really powerful effect from a shared experience like a movie like Avengers or other movies that have captivated and galvanized and reached into the hearts of fans who have created relationships with these characters for longer than many of us may even have been alive. There's a dark side when the relationships with those characters is so important that there's a willingness or a desire or even a reasoning that says that Anything that happens to those characters is the responsibility of the writer and the storyteller and the artists who are depicting them, and that if there is something that goes too far from what's considered allowed or acceptable or right, that there can be such a violent response and a willingness to take that response to a degree that the life of the person who's working with that character is now threatened. And this experience is not completely confusing for anyone who's developed a strong relationship with characters and found that someone has done something to them that they disliked. I'm well aware of the fact that there was a certain percentage of the Star Wars viewing audience that did not like that The Force Awakens featured, and this is a spoiler, so if you haven't seen that movie, please don't listen to this next part. I don't want to be the person who does this and spoils this secret for you, because we've just did this whole thing about that. But that in Force Awakens, when Han Solo's character is killed off, it created a real backlash for those who uh, felt that that was something that was not part of the story, 
that they were expecting or believed should be told about these very iconic characters who've been around for over 30 years now. And my goal here is not to attempt any sort of judgment, but more to demonstrate a pattern of behavior. And that pattern of behavior in response to the development of storylines. It should also be noted that there are some very similar occurrences when it comes to popular television shows like Game of Thrones or The Walking Dead. The departure of certain characters, the uh, killing off of characters, or the misfortunes that befall characters on those shows have created social media controversy or dissent or backlash. And yet, in no way have I been aware of threats against the creators or their lives. So keeping in mind the idea of a pattern of behavior and response, what I most want to identify here is that a moment like this should not be passed over as just comic book people being comic book people or people with emotional responses to situations, experiences, or stories going too far, but that there's a responsibility to ask why this happened and to do the best as can be done to address the community at large about circumstances that cause this to happen, but more importantly, about how the community at large can be aware of signs of something similar and developing, and how as a community at large and individually, there can be a sense of responsibility taken when we decide that the process or the developments or the revelations that come from a storyteller should not be met with a degree of that includes their personal safety. Because if we don't, at some point, that personal safety will have to be considered in the process of storytelling. And that will adversely affect the growth of storytelling. There's a principle that suggests that even the act of observing something changes it. If something can be so sensitive that it can be changed just through the act of observation, imagine how much more influential it is for a storyteller or a creator to consider that there might be a threat to their personal safety, the safety of their family, or some other degree of reaction that would cause them to consider whether or not they should be telling a story the way they want to or telling a story based on how people react. Now, that doesn't mean also that the consideration shouldn't be taken or that it isn't already taken when crafting stories and creating. There's already a personal awareness of what the expected response from uh, the reader or viewer will be because the goal is to grab their attention and to hold it. And in order to do that, there has to be an anticipation of response. Basing it on a sense of safety and on or within a framework of fear is limiting. 
just like fear itself is limiting to the any creative process. That might seem like a long-winded response or viewpoint, but it's also a recognition of the process that's required. If we're going to attempt to take responsibility for ourselves, for each other, and most importantly, out of respect for the creations, the characters, and the mediums that we believe, and I believe, need to be preserved and need to be encouraged in their positive growth without being limited by our fears. And if you can hear this snarbling snoring in the background, my little French bulldog Bruno has just had breakfast. Which reminds me, if you're looking to feed the social media beast, or content about me on social media accounts, you can find me on Instagram at SethTheWriter, on Twitter at the number one and more singleton, that's at one M-O-R-E-S-I-N-G-L-E-T-O-N, on Facebook at Seth Singleton Storyteller, on my website at Seth Singleton Storyteller, and on Tumblr, YouTube, and others. Simply put, if you type in Seth Singleton and Storyteller into any Google or otherwise popular search engine, you're guaranteed to find all the list of ways where you can reach me. Or just go to my website, SethSingletonStoryteller.com. You'll find them all there. Can't wait to hear from you. And of course, as the snarbling Bruno will remind you, it's always important to feed the beast. So thank you again for listening. And if you find yourself with an extra moment at the end of this recording, and you feel like you've got the inspiration to share, subscribe, or just tell a friend, well, thank you for that too.